Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, I'd like to introduce you to Will Kynes, my co-host, and the one who has really organized our tour through the book of Job. Uh, Will is my colleague here at Sanford University in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies, uh, where he is associate professor, and his research and teaching and writing focus especially on wisdom and suffering in the Bible, and especially in the book of Job. Uh, Will has written a number of important articles and books. Uh, Will's first book uh, was called My Psalm Has Turned Into Weeping, and the subtitle tells us that it's about Job's dialogue with the Psalms, which indicates, you know, Will's real interest in Job, but also in how Job fits with the rest of the Bible. Um, and he's currently also working on a theology of the book of Job with Cambridge Press. Um, he recently just came out with this book, the Oxford Handbook of Wisdom in the Bible. Yes which is, has a beautiful cover, as you can see. And all, all of those books have really beautiful covers. This one is his most recent book. But the Oxford Handbook uh, is really helpful if you're interested in getting uh, a little more knowledge, a little more background knowledge on what's going on in scholarship on wisdom in the Bible. It has essays from a number of different scholars on different books of the Bible and different uh, topics that have to do with wisdom. Uh, but Will's most recent book, is this book, An Obituary for Wisdom Literature, The Birth, Death, and Intertextual Reintegration of a Biblical Corpus, which came out in 2019 with Oxford University Press. And this book has made quite a splash uh, because Will is, uh, let's say, threatening uh, the scholarly consensus on the category, the genre category of wisdom literature. And we may talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, in this episode. But beyond all that, Will is a really, as I've learned, a really gifted communicator. Um, he's able to take really complicated ideas and to simplify them for students, for those who uh, have little to no background information in the topic. And Will also has a real literary uh, and poetic imagination. And I, perhaps because you did an undergraduate degree in English. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, you see that even in the title of this book, an obituary for <laughs> wisdom literature. Um, well, well, since you've spent a good time writing and thinking about uh, wisdom in the book of Job, uh, what first drew you to the book? Yeah, so after I graduated from college, uh, I moved to Kenya, and I was actually uh, working in a church there and um, doing some work with street children. And while I was in Kenya, I got as sick as I have ever been. So I had a strep throat that made it hard for me to breathe. And I had gastritis, which made it hard for me to eat. And the combination of two different illnesses at once just totally floored me. So there was a point where it was as bad as it had, as it got, I couldn't even leave the house. And so uh, I spent a week alone in this apartment that some people let me borrow so that I could get away from where I had a, some roommates I was living with. And I decided, you know, I, I felt a little bit, I think, like the 
the character in the book of Job. I mean, here I was trying to do these good things, and yet I was suffering in this terrible way. And so I decided to read through the book of Job. And I'm sure that I had read it before, but I hadn't had the life experience for it to actually connect with me. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I was just completely bowled over by what I encountered there. Because you read Job, it's really not anything like what you would expect a book in the Bible on suffering to be like. You've got this guy who, yes, his initial response seems pious and all, but then mm -hmm. he just starts going after God. And then God's response to Job, it's not the kind of warm and fuzzy response <laughs> that we might think. I mean, God comes right back at him. Uh, and so I was just fascinated by this book and, and how that that could be what the Bible says about suffering. Uh, and so ever since then, I've just continued to explore the kinds of questions that the book raises and the unexpected answers that it gives to them, which led to me doing my PhD on Job and the Psalms at Cambridge, uh, supervised by Catherine Dell, and has led to, you know, other writing and, and thinking about the book and teaching classes on it here at Samford since. Yeah, I, one of the reasons why I'm excited about co-hosting the podcast with you is because we both have a real keen interest in the literary and theological yeah. uh, significance and the themes in in the Bible, really. Yeah. Um, now, what about other introductory issues, Will, that we often encounter when we read a commentary? Right, we're kind of creating an audio library of uh, commentaries on books of the Bible. Yeah. And usually you open up a commentary and in the beginning you'll have a section on the author of the book or the date of the book or uh, the setting of the book. Oh, can you tell us anything about those for the book of Job? Honestly, Ronnie, when it comes to Job, I can't tell you a whole lot. And it's not because I haven't studied a lot and thought a lot about it. It's just because we really do not know much when it comes to Job about who the author is, when the book was written, or where it's set. Uh, David Klein's one of the leading Job scholars out there has this three-volume commentary on Job. He says, this is one of my best lines, my favorite lines in all of biblical scholarship. He says, <laughs> of Job's author or date of composition, I frankly know nothing. And my speculations are not likely to be worth more than the many guesses that already exist. So there you go. I mean, if David Klein's can't figure it out, who, who can? Uh, but uh, the general kind of traditional view is that Job is one of the earliest books in the Bible. Uh, and I think that's primarily based on the fact that it does seem to be set in a very ancient kind of setting that reminds us of the patriarchs in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but in fact, the consensus these days is that Job is actually written later uh, in Israel's history, some at some point after the return from the exile. And some see the book re reflecting on the exile, uh, and that could be there. Uh, I think, uh, for me, the strongest indications that the book is written later in Israel's history is that I really do see the author interacting with earlier books. And that's one of the things that's actually going to come up as we go through mm -hmm. these interviews with various scholars. They're going to notice some of those ways that the author of Job is having Job and the friends engage with ideas that come from Genesis or the Psalms uh, or Deuteronomy, for example. So that, that suggests that Job was written after those, those texts. Uh, we don't know much about the author. I mean, he's writing in Hebrew. Uh, he 
refers to the God of Israel by the, the covenant name. There's in terms of setting, we don't know where Uz is mm -hmm. exactly, but there's that, that detail that Job is one of the greatest, he's the greatest man of the East, right? So that suggests Uz is in the East, but then the fact that it's referred to as the East means that the author is not in the East, mm -hmm. he's somewhere West of there. So, I mean, I think it's reasonable to suggest that the author is writing from Israel. Uh, and so Job is being presented to us as a foreigner who lived long, long ago in a place far, far away. And that's about all that I think we need to know about the authorship and the date and the setting of the book. That's interesting. You know, just as you said that, uh, you know, the question that came to mind is he's a foreigner yep. who uh, fears the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's a fascinating thing about the book. And, you know, for some people that contributes to this whole idea that wisdom literature is universalistic, mm -hmm. right? And I think that there is, it does seem like the text is trying to get across that even foreigners can have this kind of relationship with God. But it is significant that even though the name of God, the covenant name of God is avoided throughout the dialogues mm -hmm. between Job and the friends, mm -hmm. it only appears once, uh, it is used in the prologue. Right. It is used when God appears to Job, and then it's used again in the epilogue. So it, it is put in the context of the relationship with a particular God, and mm -hmm. I think that is significant for understanding of the theological message of the text. Hmm. Um, now, what about the genre of the book of Job? Now, we're, <laughs> you know, we're getting to kind of the heart of your book in some uh -huh. ways, right? An obituary yeah. for wisdom literature, where scholars typically want to classify the book of Job in the genre category of wisdom literature alongside what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, right? Yeah. Um, what do you think of that? I mean, look, when I'm teaching, yeah. right, I, New Testament or other biblical books, I stress to my students, the genre of a book is very important so that you don't make the book say what it doesn't intend to say, right? So that you can calibrate your expectations. So we understand that Paul's letters are letters. They fit in that genre and uh, gospels are, you know, ancient biographies. What about Job? I mean, yeah. You're not so keen necessarily <laughs> with putting it in the bucket of wisdom literature. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so just like you said, we have this kind of tendency within biblical interpretation, and I don't think it's restricted to strict biblical scholarship. Sure. I think you see it wherever people are interpreting the Bible, that they think, well, if I can identify the genre of the text, then that's going to answer a lot of questions for me about what it means. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's true that genre does shape our expectations, but that power of genre is also a great danger, because if we misidentify the genre of a text, mm -hmm. then we're going to have the wrong expectations when we come to it. And that's my concern with the wisdom literature category is that it's, you know, you can read my book if you want to know all of the details, but yeah. you know, it only emerged in the 19th century. And it seems to impose on the text a lot of kind of post-enlightenment ideals about what a text should be about. Like, oh, we mentioned the universalism, mm -hmm. but also individualism and um, secularism and rationalism. And the basic problem when it comes to Job is it makes Job into this philosophical treatise which there are certainly important philosophical questions that the book raises that we should wrestle with. Mm -hmm. uh, but Job is very much more existential. I mean, I, I talked about my own personal experience mm -hmm. reading Job in a kind of existential crisis that I had. And Job is also facing an ex existential crisis. Mm -hmm. And what he's really dealing with is how am I going to respond to suffering? But more than that, how am I going to respond to God 
in the midst of suffering? And how will God respond to me? I mean, so it's a relational thing here. Uh, and the book does culminate in divine revelation, which when we think about the wisdom literature category right. is often set to the side because we think of wisdom literature as, you know, what we can understand about the world intellectually with our right. minds. So observing the patterns and creation exactly, and then seeing those the kinds wisdom of things. that's there. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of that that goes on there, but really to the degree that it does, the book is undercutting that, mm. right? It's showing how the friends yes, right. fail to understand Job's situation when they use that kind of an approach. Sure. So let's think about wisdom and, and we can think about connections with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as we uh, read the book, but let's also think about other genre categories we could put Job into. Um, the connections with the Psalms are really important okay. uh, because when Job talks, he, he talks a lot like a lot of the psalmists do. And some of our um, guests are going to talk about that as we right. go through. Connections with the law are important. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so Job is in some sense kind of initiating a trial with God. And so we need to, we need to pay attention to that. Uh, hymnic language, right? So actually Job is incorporating a lot of different genres of, of, of the Hebrew Bible and, and actually the ancient Near East as well. And so to understand the text fully, we can't restrict it to just wisdom literature. Right. We have to incorporate all those other ideas. Right. So your point, it sounds like, is not that it's necessarily uh, altogether wrong, to group Job with uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you can do that, right? right? But you should also think about how you can pair the book of Job with other texts in the Bible. Like exactly. So my, my real problem was is with wisdom literature. I'm doing air quotes now. Wisdom literature, <laughs> <laughs> for those who can't watch, uh, doing wisdom literature as a category, as this is what these books are. As an exclusive category. Right. Okay. But wisdom as a, as a concept that unites groups Okay. Of text together, that's okay. Okay. Well, why don't you go ahead and take us through a tour of the book of Job and maybe even highlighting uh, for us who we've invited to uh, talk about the different parts of the book of Job. Yeah, happy to do that because I'm so excited about the guests that we have this season for Job. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of great Job scholars out there, but um, we really have a, a who's who of, of some of the best. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but people who we've recruited for particular parts of the book of Job because of the work that they've done and the interest that they have that uh, I just think are perfect for talking us through these different sections. So uh, the book of Job, to understand it, right, you have to understand the setting that we get in the first two chapters, which are often called the prologue, though we talk in the episode on these chapters about whether that's really the best term for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we need to know, you know Job 1.1 1, 1 starts out, there was once a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's crucial because this whole book revolves around the fact that he is a righteous man, mm -hmm. and yet he suffers terribly. And why does he suffer? Well, because the Satan comes along and questions that mm -hmm. righteousness and asks, does Job fear God for nothing? So God allows this, this wager to occur where the Satan is allowed to take everything from Job. And is Job going to continue to be righteous or not? That's the question. And initially he is, right? So the famous verse here in Job 121 uh, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, so that's important setting for the rest of the book. And Brent Strawn from Duke Divinity School is going to talk us through the first two chapters. And we invited him to do that because he's 
he's I mean he's written on just about everything in the old, in the in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but he's also thought really carefully about the relationship between prose and poetry in the Hebrew Bible, which we get both of those in uh, the Book of Job. Right. So that's the prologue. Karl Barth said this kind of beautifully. He says something like the center of Job's problem is how he has to do with God. And yet he has no idea how far he has to do with God. I mean, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. So he knows he has to deal with God. God is God is his problem, as it were, in the book. But he kind of has, in one sense, no idea how far he has to do with God, that all this really goes back to a, to a bet. <laughs> you know, I got 20 to one on Job. What do you got? What do you got? <laughs> What's the spread? And then we move into poetry in chapter three, mm-hmm. uh, what we might call Job's birthday curse, uh, where he says, let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man child is conceived. And man then, child, I love that. <laughs> in RSV there. Uh, so, uh, and then he just proceeds to kind of tear down creation. Uh, and so Jeff Leonard, our colleague mm-hmm. here at Samford, uh, he's just recently published a book called Creation Rediscovered, thinking about uh, creation stories in the Old Testament. And he's also written a, a great article in the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament on Job 3. So we asked him to come in and talk about that. And so chapter 3 is the text that will finally turn the narrative of the book. And the friends have been more than happy to see Job suffer in silence. They are not going to like it one bit when he begins to lament in chapter 3. And that's going to pr- uh, provoke 30 chapters of dialogue. And honestly, it's what eventually will provoke the divine response, you know, beginning in chapter 38. We move on from that curse to Job's friend's response to the curse of the day of his birth. Uh, And so Job has these three friends that show up at the end of the prologue. And initially, the friends address Job very respectfully. So Job 4, 4 to 5, Your words have supported those who were stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees, but now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Uh, But as the dialogue between Job and the friends proceeds, so we have three cycles of each of the friends getting a turn, and then Job replying to each of the friends in turn, uh, the, the nature of that back and forth really breaks down. Uh, and so by the end, Eliphaz, that same friend who had addressed Job so respectfully at the beginning, mm-hmm. says, is not your wickedness great? There is no end to your iniquities, right? So something, <laughs> something has fallen apart here. And Patricia Vesley from Memphis Theological Seminary, she's written an excellent book called Friendship and Virtue Ethics in the Book of Job. So she's going to walk us through how friendship contributes to the nature of this dialogue in the book. And that uh, same opening speech in chapter six to the friends is, you see a horror and you flee in fright. Mm -hmm. The friends are so afraid of his situation. They don't want to change their worldviews. So he needs courage. He needs chesed or loyalty. He needs an advocate uh, to be there with him to come into his space and not just kind of smooth out the intellectual bumps in this broken worldview. So along the way, part of what makes the friends uh, turn on Job is the fact that Job doesn't give up on complaining to God. He doesn't repent and submit like the friends think that he should when facing this suffering. Uh, And so Tripper Longman from Westmount College has written a lot on 
a lot of things, <laughs> but including Job. He's written the Baker commentary uh, on Job. He's also written The Fear of the Lord is Wisdom, a Theological Introduction to Wisdom in Israel. Uh, and he's going to talk us through uh, Job's complaints and the nature of those complaints, what Job is complaining about, and how he goes about his lament and argument with God. Even though he does complain about God to the three friends, but he also maintains this relationship with God where he's expressing what he feels. And I think, again, as we said earlier, God invites that kind of boldness. As John Calvin said about the Psalms, he goes, there's not an emotion felt by man that isn't expressed in this book like a mirror. The difference between Job taking his complaints to God, as opposed to what happens in the wilderness, they never take their complaints to God. They just talk amongst themselves. Oh, that horrible God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And that brings God's judgment, whereas I, I think Job complaining to God is actually showing a continuing relationship with God. He hasn't given up on God. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. In the midst of those complaints, we have Job's appeal to a kind of redeemer figure. I mean, most famously, we see that in uh, chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. Now, there has been just mountains of literature written on how we're supposed to understand Job 19. And Brennan Breed uh, from Columbia Theological Seminary, he, in his PhD dissertation, decided to dive into those mountains of literature. Uh, and what he came out with was this great book called Nomadic Text, A Theory of Biblical Reception History, which expands from the question of how do we understand Job 1925 to 27 to just how do we understand biblical texts at all in light of the various ways that they can be interpreted. And he's going to walk us through how we think about Job's Redeemer. A lot of times these translations are all pretty much the same, but uh, this one's all over the map. I mean, all these translations are struggling with the text. And that tells me as a reader that it wasn't like some scribe messed up somewhere along the line. The author was trying to get people to struggle. The mm -hmm. point of this text in some ways for us to struggle with something. Uh, and if you have to put it into words, you're going to have to choose something. You have to end up making some choices about this text. Toward the end of this dialogue between Job and the friends, uh, it's clear that that dialogue has broken down. And then there's this odd thing, this poem. Uh, uh, it, it, some call it a hymn to wisdom. Uh, and it's a little bit unclear who's even speaking at this point, but it's powerful poetry. Uh, and it asks this question, where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Uh, and it depicts this kind of imagery of potentially mining or potentially something else. Uh, and so Scott Jones from Covenant College, he, he wrote this book, Rumors of Wisdom, Job 28 as Poetry, where he's dug into uh, the metaphors there uh, in Job 28 to try and understand them. He's going to walk us through that poem. In that sense that I mentioned before, that Perhaps this poem is an allegory of two different ways of understanding the world. I think that it does take us back to a different way of understanding our modern tendencies, at least here in the West, have been to praise our own voids and technologies and how uh, through human ingenuity we can 
conquer the world. And I'm, I'm certainly not against human ingenuity. Um, that's not what I'm suggesting. Uh, but I do think that this poem may suggest that without proper humility and understanding one's place in the grand scheme of things, the cosmos as uh, created and governed by God and submitting to that governance, that one's possible um, boasting hubris based on one's achievements is, is misplaced and dangerous and that, that that could go terribly wrong. Following that poem, we have Job's final discourse in chapters 29 to 31. Here, Job really pulls out all of the ammunition he's got and focuses it at God to try and force God to respond. And it culminates at the end of chapter 31. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. I would give him, him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. And Edward Greenstein from Bar-Alan University has recently published this new translation of Job with Yale University Press. Uh, he's going to walk us through what's going on there in chapters 29 to 31. He's going to explain to us the dynamics of uh, Job's final discourse. When Job stubbornly refuses to admit any guilt and to, and to, uh, to charge God with injustice, uh, the friends will assume that Job had must have committed something wrong, and they then they all get on his case. Um, but he, Job, is convinced he didn't do anything to warrant it. And if he has done something to warrant punishment, he thinks that by taking this oath of innocence, he is, as I said before, throwing the ball the ball into God's court, and God then will have to appear and to tell him what he's done wrong. That's what he desperately wants to know. Following that, we get this surprising figure that shows up seemingly out of nowhere, Elihu, uh, in chapters 32 to 37. Uh, and he hasn't been mentioned before. He won't be mentioned again. Uh, and he is blustery and uh, very full of himself. You get a taste of it just in his first um, his first speech, chapter 32, uh, eight. Uh, verse 8, but truly it is the spirit in immortal, the breath of the Almighty that makes for understanding. It's not the old that are wise, nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. I mean, that's just classic <laughs> Elihu. So people have really struggled to understand, like, what do we do with this guy? I'm excited to have Dominic Hernandez from Biola University, who is one of uh, Ed Greenstein's students at Bar Ilan. Uh, Talk us through what's happening uh, with Elihu. Elihu is not mentioned or alluded to in any other section of the text up to that point. He's not mentioned in the text after that point. So for the reader of Job, his speeches are unexpected. His character is unexpected, but it doesn't mean that they are that they're worthless. So the questions that we have to ask of the text consists of what is Elihu doing here? What is the purpose of him showing up in this manner in terms of how the entire composition should be read or could be read? And how does he compare and contrast with that which has already been stated? And how might he bridge the gap for the text that's to come? Following Elihu, finally, we get God's response uh, in the divine speeches in chapter 38 to 41. God says, gird up your loins like a man. 
I will question you and you shall declare to me. And then he asks all of these rhetorical questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then goes through this kind of safari. Uh, we're introducing Job to all of these different animals and also to the cosmos and these mighty creatures, behemoth and Leviathan. And Bill Brown from Columbia Theological Seminary is just one of those biblical scholars you can tell loves this particular text. In his book, Wisdom's Wonder, he dives deeply into it. And uh, so I'm excited to share with you his thoughts uh, on the divine speeches. The speeches by God, the so-called Yahweh speeches in chapters 38 to 42, offer one of the most exciting, uh, enlivening, enlightening, crazy kind of depiction of creation in the whole Hebrew Bible. I think yeah. it rivals it rivals Genesis 1 in terms of its cosmic perspective. It's uh, richly poetic. Uh, it, is, um, it is full of passion. And so the, the, this poetic presentation of creation by God, I think points to something of the passion of God towards creation itself. Finally, we get to chapter 42, the final chapter of the book, and there's just so much crucial that goes on here. We get Job's response to the divine speeches, the, the debated chapter 42, verse 6, uh, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do we understand it that way uh, or not? We get God's verdict on Job and the friends, where he actually says that it's Job who spoke of him what is right and not the friends who defended him. And finally, we get to the end where it says in the last verse, and Job died old and full of days. Uh, and Carol Newsom from Candler School of Theology, um, one of my very favorite Job scholars, though, I mean, I tell you what, all of these scholars have been great, uh, but Carol has been really influential on my own thinking on the book of Job. She, she offers us a fitting conclusion for our tour through the book as she helps us wrestle through the very difficult issues in that final chapter. This is where I think Job experiences his world, I think, is finally tragically shaped in the sense that tragedy is, is the occurrence of when you have, uh, there are two contradictory realities and you have to live at the intersection of them. And so on the one hand, yes, human beings, by understanding ourselves to be in the likeness and image of God, are called to make moral communities. And we understand that to be grounded in the divine. But we also look at this wider frame of creation in which God is a God of viruses as well as the God of human beings. And it's just not so simple to make a single picture out of all of this. And that's why I think Job, it's not that he says, oh, happy day, I understand everything. Now I can go back and live in contentment. He's going to always be living in the tension of justice is not the only principle in the cosmos. I'm going to bring my children into a world. I've already lost, I couldn't protect my first family. I lost them. But I'm going to bring more children into this world, knowing that life may not treat them fairly. Awful things will, in fact, happen to them, just as good things will happen to them. As Job said early on, shall we accept what's good and not also accept what's bad? 
from the hand of God. And so I think it's living in that tension that this contradiction is trying to direct us back to. Now, Will, what for you is the most difficult thing about the book of Job? Yeah, so for me, the biggest challenge for Job is how you fit all the pieces together. Uh, So there are ways in which you can put some of the pieces together and the whole book makes perfect sense. But you're always leaving something out, right? Uh, And so it's it's like trying to like, I don't know, you know, grab something, one of those like squishy balls where there's always a little bit of that like goes between your fingers that you can't quite um, capture. Uh, So, you know, if you understand Job as repenting at the end, then what do you do with the following verse where God says Mm -hmm. that he has spoken of him what is right? Uh, But if you say, well, then Job has spoken of God what is right, what do you do with the fact that Job says some things about God (laughs) that sure don't seem right, you know, like God is not just and is not righteous. And so that's really challenging. And it's one of the reasons why you have to work your way through the whole book if you want to understand it. Uh, You can't just pick and choose because everything is related to everything else. It's also why I think it's great that we have this diverse range of scholars, because what you're going to see is that every scholar who comes to the book uh, is going to, as they're putting the pieces together, put them together slightly differently. And that, and, um, Carol Newsom, one of the points that she makes that's great about the book is that our interpretive presuppositions in many ways shape the way that we interpret these difficult parts of the book. Mm. Uh, and we just can't get around that. It's, it's in some ways better to admit that up front. Uh, but that means that each of those scholars who comes from a different angle, and this is a point that Brennan Breed makes in his episode, um, those are valuable because they're, they're highlighting different features and helping us to understand the book more fully when we see them together. Right, I think that inter- integrating uh, way of reading the book of Job is really important because when we interview these scholars on a particular passage, it's not like they don't make references to other parts of the book of Job, right? right? You kind of have to try to figure out how it fits in the book as a whole. It's kind of, you know, like um, when I've been teaching the gospel of Matthew, and if you come upon a particular parable, right, you know, we tend to have the tendency of taking the parable and just trying to understand it on its own as though it stands alone. But really, if you're a careful detective and interpreter, you're going to try to think about how that parable or how that piece in the book of Job fits in the other, you know, arguments and theological and thematic threads that are woven throughout the book. Yeah. Right. And that's why, even though we're bringing in these guests to talk about a specific part of the book, one of the first questions we always ask them is, how do you see this part fitting into the book as a whole? Uh, Great. Now, drawing on the genre that biblical scholars, and this is a question that, by the way, that we ask each one of our guests, right? We ask them to blurb about something. So now I'm going to put it to you, and you can basically kick us all off. Uh, Drawing on the genre that we as biblical scholars seem to have perfected, which is uh, the genre of the blurb. You know, when you look at the back of, oh my goodness, your book has no blurbs on it. No, Oxford did not want to do blurbs. Okay, well... Many books, <laughs> <laughs> publishers like to put blurbs on the back of the book because it kind of, you know, gives a who's who yeah. who's endorsing this book, mm-hmm. right? So 
why don't you kick us off by giving us a blurb? It doesn't have to be of a book. It could yeah. be of uh, a new hobby you've picked up or a tool that you've recently acquired at the Home Depot or something. <laughs> um, uh, give us a blurb about that thing so that when someone hears, oh, Dr. Will Kynes made a blurb about that, I've got sure. to have it. What is that thing? <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to give you two, okay? okay. So the, the first is a book. And I'm going to try and do this in the genre of the blurb because, you know, I love genre. Yes. So let's see how this works. You love genre, right? I do. Okay. All right. <laughs> So for the poignant expression of the joy and sorrow of human experience in story form, few can compare with the greats of Russian literature, such as Turgenev, Chekhov, and Tolstoy. But for insightful reading of those stories, which conveys how they express the very essence of life, George Saunders is unmatched. In a swim in a pond in the rain, Saunders teaches readers how to improve their reading and teachers how to improve their teaching. And with the help of these Russian giants, humans, how to improve their humanity, a must read. Wow. Very nice. Yeah, well, thank you. I feel like, you know, uh, this could be improved, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because when I, you know, Russian literature, I mean, to exclude Dostoevsky. That's true, though he's focusing on short stories. So okay. I think that's why Dostoevsky doesn't make it. Oh, but Dostoevsky okay. is my personal favorite, okay. actually. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Fair enough. You got another one for us, right? Yeah. So the other one is... Uh, I have for a long time struggled with back issues and in fact, recently struggled with them in a more intense way, yeah. uh, maybe related to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, one of my friends let me borrow his massage gun. And let me tell you, it has been a revelation. So I'm going out to try and, and buy my own, but let me tell you, they're really expensive, like $350 for the high-end ones. But oh, the wow. one that my Friend let me borrow was a hundred dollars, mm -hmm. and it's just about as good okay. as the as the big deal ones. Okay. So my my real blurb is don't spend the big money. Okay. Uh, but just you know get one of the ones that's well reviewed on Amazon, and I think you're gonna be fine. Do you want to tell us which one that is? Well, I haven't or, figured out which one. Oh, okay. I, I'm still sorting that out. All that's right. the problem with not getting the big brand name is right. then you got to figure out which one is actually reliable or not. But maybe I can update later. Okay, sure, sure. That'd be great. Great. <laughs> Check out our social media and I'll fill you in. <laughs> yeah, well, people will be wondering why we have massage guns on our <laughs> Twitter or Facebook feed. Uh, well, thanks, Will, for taking us on that uh, brief highlighted tour uh, in our season through Job. And for you, our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. And if you'd like to le learn more about our schedule and uh, the guides that we have who are leading us through the book of Job, you can visit our website at thetwotestaments.com. Uh, there you can subscribe so you get all the latest updates. You can also follow us on Twitter and you can join our Facebook group. Uh, until next time, take care. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.